Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighter's Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 3, The Siege. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? This is the third part conclusion of the season premiere. It's three episodes. When we first, when we last saw the crew, Deep Space Nine is about to be taken over. Bajoran vessels are coming and it is fast approaching. Ben is like, I'm staying. I'm staying with the team. And he goes, who's coming with me? You know, who's coming with me to them? You know, because we don't, what, what? A lot of people don't know is that the Cardassians are actually supplying the weapons for this effort from the circle to get to mess with the provisional Bajoran government, but that is unbeknownst to the Bajoran people. We see that Quark is selling seats to runabout, you know, staking play on people's tragedy, sells his brother's seat. Turns out later that his brother sells Quark's seat. Families and friends are being separated. Different people are going to different places. Keiko is upset. That's Miles O'Brien's wife. She doesn't want the family to separate. It's the first time that Miles calls Cardassians Cardies. I thought that was interesting. Odo and Quark, they say they'll miss each other, but will they really miss each other? As the ship's board, Lee Nallis says, Bajorans should not leave. And he is on his hero shit, so they don't. Jake wants to stay, but Ben sends him a letter. Read this. 
I love you. Bye. So Quark, as we say, he stays because he got tricked out of it. The Bajorans lay siege. They they start walking around. They don't see anybody. It's on some like, it's quiet. A little bit too quiet. Kira and Dax, at Lee Nala's behest, go to a moon base to find these uh, raider ships at Deep Space Nine. The Bajorans cannot claim that they have Deep Space Nine until they have the crew. And they want to leave Lee Nalis alive as not to martyr him. They want him alive, but they want to make sure that he doesn't become a Kai. Because Jaro is working with Vedic Wynn to be like, yo, if we get this shit going, you'll be Kai Wynn if it all goes according to plan. Bong, bong. Kira and Dax using some of that old info that Dax has from being, you know, centuries old person through the symbiote. Because there's Jadzia and Dax, so the Dax part of Jadzia, using that info with the craft. The Bajorans are back in Deep Space Nine, you know, looking for the Federation soldiers. They show up in civilian clothes and they start blasting. And a bunch of them find the Federation in a hollow suite and explain, yo, the Cardassians are providing guns and arrest some of them. And and they're like, yo, the intel is being sent to the Cardassians. They're part of this. But if you chill out, we can promise amnesty. But they want the info to get to the provisional government. So Dax and Kira, they ha- they crash and they wake up in the monastery to get these info to the chamber of the ministers. That and Kira shows the truth, but Jaro's like, nah, you're a rabble rouser. You're just you're just trying to stir shit up. But Kira is able to prove all of this. And when on her backstabby shit is like, well, if we search Jaro's stuff, I'm sure there'll be nothing wrong, you know, because she's like, you're not going to get, you're not going to get me. Uh, <laughs> the, the circle is broken. Starfleet is given back Deep Space Nine. As this happens, Krim, who's one of the Bajorans who's taking, trying to take over Deep Space Nine, his second, who's named Day, who's a member of the circle, shoots and accidentally kills Lee Nallis, creating a martyr. And here we have the end to three parts of the new season of Deep Space Nine. A martyr was made. Okay. O'Brien says Cardi's. Cardi's? O'Brien, come on. But I actually thought this was a clever bit of writing because O'Brien is a good guy with some bigotry, which is how racism is in real life. But also the poignancy of saying it in front of Keiko, who's Japanese. See, you noticed it too, right? Yeah, so Cardi, a shortened version of Cardassians, reminds me a lot of the slur for Japanese people. Yep. Japan was also the quote-unquote enemy of the U.S. during World War II. But by the 90s, it was still understood dehumanizing an enemy, especially a different race, is unacceptable. And also considering the the trauma bonding and trauma understanding of both Keiko's people and O'Brien, because both of them have strong connections to their roots, granted 200, 300 years later, but both of both of their cultures made fun of terribly called outside of their name. I thought it was a little curious that he would do that. 
But again, it, it talks about the banality, the benevolent, benevolent racism, the good guy, racist guy, you know? And, and also it's okay because it's the Cardassians. They're the bad guys. <laughs> and to your point about shared trauma and pain, then we have O'Brien follow up with picking duty over family. Even normally tender Cisco is getting all dutiful and militaristic. I didn't get the sense that the writers were trying to be preachy, that this is a good thing, more that this is what is happening and that everyone is happy about it. And we see that with Keiko and her daughter. Who's, who's so cute. Very much so. The selling of the seats by Quark later reminds me of classic disaster capitalism. Let no crisis go to waste, an old Western imperialist proverb. And it's just something that you see more of Quark when he tries to play this like less villainous. When he tries to play the foil, you're still reminded that he comes from a place of he's always trying to get profit, but you know he sound it feel like it's like someone on the Titanic selling life rope lifeboat rafts <laughs> or whatever, and then his his he sells his brother's seat for a premium, and then his brother uh sells his seat to a Davo girl <laughs> a note to our listeners if you love the Southpaw project. Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Then later, Cisco telling Lee Nallis to be the symbol that people need reminds me of the classic Alfred speech to Batman in the movies, which is a good backdrop to discuss material analysis. Conservative and liberal political analysis is based on the belief that things happen based on narrative and story, that the world is made up of stories and that you got Hitler and Trump to even Obama because they are storytellers and myth makers who are able to influence the crowd and get the people to believe what they believe. Now, manipulation to myth-making is real and powerful, but Marxian political analysis is that, plus material analysis. Hitler doesn't just rise up. It was based on the conditions of Germany after World War I. Obama came after the disaster of the Bush years. Ideas and stories come from the conditions. This is why so many U.S. myths are white supremacist, because they came from the conditions of settler colonialism. So thinking about the situation of Bajor, the people don't need a myth. The priority is food and water and having their needs met. If a house is on fire, you don't need a good narrative about it. If I'm starving, I don't need a story. I need the fire to be put out and I need food. I need universal healthcare, not memes of Biden eating ice cream. So even though liberals and socialists are categorized in opposition to conservatives, 
This is why they still don't see eye to eye because they have fundamentally different political views. Ultimately, this concept of story and symbolic politics is individualist and just the great man theory of history that one person changes everything for good or bad, or that story can change each individual, like self help, or to what annoys you, Scott, about Aaron Sorkin. None of the problems are from West Wing people being bad. The problems are all from not connecting with the voters. But like, is story and charisma what people like us or Bajorans need, or do they need worker rights, human rights, food, healthcare, water, schools? Especially right now, thinking about parts of this country that needs clean water. You can use story to make unhappy people blame some other party, but you need them to be unhappy first. So changing the story doesn't mean you solved the problem or made them happy. That's the symptom, not the cause. What's amazing to me is liberals will understand this about their own personal health, that they don't want to treat a symptom, but the cause, but they won't apply this logic to politics. You don't get Trump without people being really unhappy and lots of people having never recovered from the 08 financial crisis while the U.S. pretended like they did. Trump is a symptom. But what's happening here? Like right now, inflation and this recession, the establishment doesn't want to admit is a recession, is making people unhappy. Telling them everything is fine is not making them happy. This shows the limits of story. The Democrats are constantly running with messages and stories and branding, but no one's happy because they actually have to do stuff to make people happy. If you don't do that, why would they be happy? I can't pay my rent or feed my kids on symbols and stories and trying to uncover the truth about Trump. How about starting with the simple step of asking people what they need? Finding out the ultimate source for the weapons for the circle was Cardassia doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of Bajorans who are not happy with the Federation, and I'm certain that will remain a source of friction. But when watching DS9 or sci-fi or any fiction, really, rather than just thinking about whether the episode or movie or book was good or bad, I think what is more fun and useful can be how else could this have been imagined? How would socialists have written this? Or how would socialists have acted in the same situation? How would Hillary Clinton have handled it? Or Trump? Or Bernie? Or even Fred Hampton? I think because this season so far has been so political and Star Trek is about what-ifs and thought experiments, I think it's good to also imagine other what-ifs and possibilities for the same situations. What would you do in this situation? If I were O'Brien, would I have picked duty over family? No, but that's me. I think sci-fi is a great way to stretch your political and moral imagination, not just what the writers presented, but for you to go beyond that. That's what Southpaw DS9 is hopefully exploring. You know, like I've been rereading The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, and I see some of the, some analogs to Cardassia and Napoleon Empire and to St. Louviter, you know, trying to free his people from Haiti and um, take take advantage of the, their nutrient-rich land, which has always been taken advantage of. And then I see parallels in there. And because the 
the parallels we see between the Cardassians and the Bajorans and who they are and what they can be changes based on different stories. But the idea of of Cardassia trying to, you know, create another war, create a create a um unrest within the Bajoran people to somehow get a power play feels very right. It feels like, okay, so they're not done with this stuff because powers why why do powers ever give up powers? And when you talked about Fred Hampton, what would he do in this situation? Well he would have created a rainbow coalition of of figuring out the interest of all the people that were getting fucked over by all this stuff. The reason why I think Fred Hampton was one of the most promising young leftists of America was his 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 intelligence, his ingenuity, his holistic look of change, how he was training people to be both smart and strong and healthful and charitable and and talk to people that were different that were also getting fucked over by the means of capitalism. So I'd love to see a Fred Hampton character in in Star Trek. Just I don't one, I don't think that they would be well equipped to really do it justice. And two, I wouldn't want to see the trauma again. Now this episode was actually less about political talk but more an action-adventure episode. So, Scott, overall, thoughts on the episode? Did the show nail the landing and the ending of the story arc? No. Were you sad Lee Nallis died? No. Or was that anticlimactic? Yes. Yes, it was anticlimactic. No, I was not satisfied with the way they did this. No, this is the worst episode of the three episodes. As far as the Star Trek episode goes, I was disappointed with almost everything except for the espionage, um, us getting to know who who Vedic Wynn is, even though we didn't see a lot of her, us seeing the characters and how they act. And yeah, now this is my least favorite episode of season two thus far. The first episode of this arc, of course. You're just introducing Frank Langella, so you're only going to show him a little bit, right? And whenever he's in the scene, he's amazing. He just steals the scene. Amazing actor. Second episode, he comes out a little bit more, and you're like, okay, we're building to something. And then the final episode, this episode that we're talking about, we see him even less than the first episode. And I'm like, they barely utilize this guy. So I was very disappointed how little they use this actor, but also how little... Like he's the central figure of this whole thing, and yet he came out so little in this whole three-story arc. I was very annoyed with it. I'm telling you, this whole episode was very. I was like, I hate it when the exposition is beaten over my head this bad. <laughs> and also, yeah, because it's like it's just such bullshit. We we get this exciting character in Lee Nallis, and he's dead before the whole thing goes. They had set it up so well where they could have done it in a way where if they were to kill him, it could have been really dramatic and good. But instead, it was just like they killed him off like he was an extra or like just a guest of the week. They No, he really was just a red shirt. But, you know, you know that term? Yeah. Explain it for listeners who don't know what that is. 
So in Star Trek and later on in other media, but it comes from Star Trek, a red shirt is a is a character that's a nondescript character, usually in a red shirt, that would get a couple lines of dialogue and then die. <laughs> and he was the red shirt martyr. And I was just frustrated because I, I was just like, this is whack. I just, I, you're going to see season two really is a great season. And I think you're going to like next week's episode. But, you know, this one was just, hey, let's, let's, we're done. We're over it. All right, then. Talk to us about next week's episode. Ooh, you're in for a treat, man. So next week's episode, we get we we're gonna go back to more of like a, a story of the week kind of vibe and get a little bit more backstory on a character that we all really like. And it is called Invasive Procedure. Mmm. All right. Until then. Da-da-da. 